Let's start with a motivation. This late afternoon, I went up the meadow and I looked over the hills. I saw the mountains. I was actually above the clouds, the first layer of clouds. Above me was another layer, but in between was a lot of clarity. And this first layer of clouds that was right where the abbey buildings are and spread throughout the whole valleys gave me a sense of peace for some reason. I saw the clouds moving along between the hills, penetrating the trees, moistening the earth. I saw on the other side the sun set, beautiful and red. It was silent. It was beautiful. I touched the earth and I felt a light coolness and I felt connected and in peace. At the same time, I was thinking that while I'm here and breathing fresh air, one of the clearest air that we have on this planet, available at this moment. I could feel the moisture and the health of that moment here in time and space. But at the same time, there are so many of us, humans and other beings, who are dying due to environmental pollution. I was reminded upon a song by Michael Jackson that he released in 1995. I'm not supposed to sing, but I would like to share parts of the lyric. What about sunrise? What about rain? What about all the things that you said we were to gain? What have we done to the world? Look what we have done. What about all the peace? What about flowering fields? Is there a time? What about all the dreams that you said was yours and mine? I used to dream, I used to glance beyond the stars. Now I don't know where we are. Although I know we have drifted far. What about the seas? Heavens are falling down. I can't even breathe. What about nature's worth? Is our planet's womb? What about animals turn kingdoms to dust? What about elephants? Have we lost their trust? What about crying whales? Leveraging the seas. What about forest trails burned despite our pleas? What about children dying? Can't you hear them cry?
I was not into music, but this song really touched me when I was 17. Thunberg, Greta Thunberg and many others now, right now, are actually hearing these children crying. Not just children. Adults, older people and other human beings. Greta Thunberg said, just today, I think, at the COP25, or in the starting of COP25, I sincerely hope that COP25 will reach something concrete and increase awareness among people, and that world leaders and people in power grasp the urgency of climate crisis. Because right now it doesn't seem that they are, she said. Johan Rockstrom, the director of the Potsdam Institute from Germany for Climate Impact Research, said, Social scientists believe that when roughly 3.5% of the nation's population joins civil and non-violent uprisings, it can be enough to force change, even in a dictatorship. In Germany, numbers at the climate demonstration in September 20 were estimated at nearly 2% of the population, and in New Zealand, 3.5. Our motivation for this evening should be backed up by Bodhicitta, for sure. But we also can set an immediate motivation intention right now to increase our awareness of all life our interconnectedness and train ourselves in gaining the skills and abilities not to harm, to help, and so to be of greatest benefit to all living beings. We can decide every moment to drive less, use less plastic, for example, that means to save many beings' lives. This already fulfills our mission not to harm, but to be of benefit. So, I think, and I love to see um, what we are doing here is connected to what we are experiencing in this world. And learning the Buddha Dharma is very much of great help um, because if we transform ourselves, that will affect how we act in the world and how we influence each other and so make a change in society. And I, I'm so happy that I personally, I'm here at the Abbey where we try really so well to treat our environment in a good way and to make it even better um, as we already do and to spread the message of how we um, act in daily life 
with non-harmfulness, with loving kindness, with compassion and wisdom. So uh, yeah, maybe um, do a short review of chapter four and five. <laughs> I got quite a bit, <laughs> but I will keep it short. Um, so I will go a little bit through the history, have a Q&A, so I will challenge you. <laughs> and then um, we will have a, a bit of an interaction also with the whiteboard, a meditation on the Four Noble Truth, and then a short discussion group um, on the Mahayana scriptures. All right, um, chapter four starts on page 75, if, to, if you want to follow along somehow. Um, the spread of the Buddha Dharma and Buddhist canons. First of all, I'd like to ask you, uh, why is it important to know the history of the Buddha Dharma? There are three points. I can start. <laughs> you can think. <laughs> It helps us to discern culture and the actual Buddha Dharma. But what actually is um, Buddhism and what is culture? <laughs> we talked about it um, during class. For example, um, it's not Buddha Dharma to know how we give katas, right? We had the discussion just recently. It's a culture, it comes from um, another tradition before Buddhism has been established. Actually, um, it goes back, many of those um, uh, um, cultural activities has been established um, or has been in Tibet um, due to the burn tradition and that was there before um, Buddhism flourished. So there are two more reasons why it's important to know the history of the Buddha Dharma. To avoid getting involved in uh, sectarian biases that have produced conflict in the past. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Venema Shutran was referring here to the example that we are not taking refuge in Buddhist institutions, right? Um, <clears throat> The Dharma, so, um, goes beyond space and time, and that's our real refuge. Okay, and the third, maybe? Any idea? Anybody? All right. Um, also, we come to see that Buddhism has been influential in society, and society uh, influences Buddhism. All right. A brief uh, overview about Buddha's life just um, to recall, because we will um, go into some history about the first um, establishment of the Buddha Dharma. So Buddha was born as a prince uh, from the Shakya clan in the 5th century BCE, near India-Nepal border. And he had a sheltered life uh, and still ventured out to seek the truth. He took upon himself uh, certain challenges by adopting a lifestyle of a wandering mendicant, so different from what uh, he had in his palace, right? He practiced to um, uh, severe asceticism to find the middle path. And Mara, or in other words, uh, 
mental obscurations attacked him when sitting under the Bodhi tree. So he mastered it all uh, through great diligence and could cleanse his mind of all obscurations and um, developed all good qualities so became a Buddha, a fully awakened one. And then 35 years um, from then on he started to teach uh, for the remaining 45 years and he taught beings on all, uh, all kinds of beings. Uh, there was no discrimination and um, Still under those he taught, um, there were different kinds of practitioners. What are the different practitioners uh, associated with the three vehicles? And I'll explain briefly the three motivations behind uh, what differentiates the three vehicles. The fundamental vehicle is practitioners who are looking to have a fortunate rebirth, maybe that's the next one, The maybe the middle vehicle is looking um, for liberation from cyclic existence, and the Mahayana practitioner is looking for full liberation, or full Buddhahood. Mm -hmm. Awakening, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. So the Shravaka solitary realizers and the Bodhisattvas. So then um, we go into the next section of that book, um, the early Buddhist schools. So after the Buddha's passing, uh, the Ahad Mahakashyapa gathered 500 Ahads together in Rajkriya to recite the Buddha's discourses. And that's the first concil. And Sutras were passed down by so-called banakas. Um, monastics were memorized and taught them to others throughout many parts of India uh, during the first century. And then the second council uh, was in 383 BCE, and they said 18 sects um, appeared and wrote down the three baskets, Vinaya Sutra and Abhidhamma, and it spread throughout India as well. And therefore, we have some variety due to different cultures, climates, and languages. And then the third century um, BC, uh, the king Ashoka's daughter and son transmitted Buddhism to Sri Lanka. And the Palankalan wasn't closed till the fifth century. Uh, so scriptures did um, still got added to it. And from this time on, uh, we have um, comparatively good records about the history of Buddhism there, not so um, from India and Tibet. We are going very fast, growth, growth of the Mahayana tradition. <laughs> Just an overview to recall our memory. So on page 86, um, His Holiness says, Academic scholars, as well as practitioners of the Pali tradition, have questioned the authenticity of the Mahayana Sutras, asserting that they were not spoken by the Buddha, but were written later over a span of several centuries. One of the chief reasons for this claim is that the Pali Sutras were more publicly known and widespread in the early centuries than the Mahayana Sutras. The discovery in Pakistan and Afghanistan over the 
last few decades of many Buddhist manuscripts that date from the end of the first century BCE have changed academic scholars' view on the, of the Mayana. The newly found manuscripts written in Gandhari Pakrit are older than all, any previously discovered. Many of them are from the Dhammaguptaka school and some are Mayana sutras. So the Mayana is referring to a body of scriptures. <laughs> In the 4th century, Asanga referred to these scriptures explaining the path of the Bodhisattva. And by the 6th century, uh, people were calling themselves Mayanists, although Mayana was not a religion in itself, nor a distinct institution. institution. It is also not a lineage, um, doesn't have a specific um, ge geographical location, is not a monolithic doctrine, although the practitioners have or had shared beliefs such as um, uh, in the Bodhisattva path. And then prior to the 12th century, it said that the Shravaka vehicle and the Mayana um, practiced and flourished together. They lived in the same monasteries, practiced and studied the same texts or debated their unique ones. They received ordination in the same lineage and performed the Vinaya rituals together. What does it remind you <laughs> about? I was thinking about um, a little bit about the Abbey. I mean, we are encouraged to practice the Bodhisattva path, but not everybody. I mean, I'm not a Bodhisattva, right? I'm, I'm aspiring. So where do I on the path? <laughs> and so there may be some Bodhisattvas here. And um, we practice together the Vinaya, right? And debate even. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought that uh, was uh, quite interesting to see. Over time, the Shravaka vehicle lineages in India disappeared due to political conditions and um, the race of Bud Hinduism and the lack of involvement in the lives um, of the lay people, what I found very interesting too. So what we are doing here uh, is so opposite what um, Tibetan traditional Tibetan monasteries have done or still are doing. Um, I know in Taiwan, um, the monastics are very engaged in society, so we are doing that. And I think that's really um, contributing to the um, spread of the Dharma uh, within society and um, then flourishing and um, setting deep foundations so it can't be shaked when, other, when circumstances arise, such as even environmental uh, crises that will really shake people's mind and um, lives. Um, later, Mahayana groups have been affected by these occurrences as well, and Buddhism therefore largely disappeared in India um, by the early 13th century, uh, but the Pali and Sanskrit traditions have been spread by then throughout Asia and beyond. Uh, we will come back to this topic uh, at the end of this review when we uh, do a short discussion about it. Then we have the development of Tantra. Uh, Tantra. Till the 6th century, the teachings of the Buddhist Tantrayana were passed down privately. And by the 9th century, they were, uh, have been included as a scholarly discipline. Buddhist Tantra spread to North India, Sri Lanka, Southeast Asia, China, Tibet, and Japan. And also Hinduism and Jainism adapted the Tantric system, but it, um, it's... Um, mm, diverse uh, to Buddhist Tantra that is rooted in um, 
in the Four Truths, uh, in Refuge in the Three Jewels, Renunciation of Sansara, Bodhicitta, and the Wisdom Realizing Emptiness. You can find that on page 90. And um, then we continue, we will run through this, um, just to refresh our mind, Buddhist canons. So we have three canons um, are extant, Pali, Chinese, and Tibetan. And they are divided into three baskets. The Vinaya, which deals chiefly with the monastic discipline. Uh, Sutra emphasizes on concentration and Abhidharma on wisdom. And these canons evolved out of the existence of the vast array of Buddhist sutras, and each has been translated into various other languages, such as Tibetan uh, canon into Mongolian, or uh, the Pali into English. So first we have the Pali canon that was codified um, uh, first, but closed uh, not till the 5th century. Then we have the Chinese canon that has been first published in 983 and also is used in Taiwan, Korea, Japan, and in parts of Vietnam. And then we have the Tibetan canon, has been formed in the early uh, 14th century through editorial efforts of Bhutan Rinpoche and others. But scriptures um, have been already collected in the 7th century. A Tibetan monarch established a convention that enables readers to identify to which basket the scriptures belong to. Do you remember which ones um, they are? As I recall, the Buddha, they offer salutation to the Buddha if it's a Vanaya scripture. And I think to Manjushri if it's a Abhidharma scripture. Yeah, when I did this before, I wrote Progress Towards Buddhahood without falling to nihilism by misunderstanding. That was the goal, progress towards Buddha, mm -hmm. without falling to nihilism. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think that I took these from the book, but yeah. I don't know. Page 124. Page 124. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And then the sutras taught. Mm -hmm. Sutra and Reveling of Thought. Nature and the naturalness of each of the three That's the key canons. teachings. Yeah. Right, that's the key mm -hmm. teachings. Okay. Yeah, Tathagatagarbha. Sutra, yeah, Tathagatagarbha Sutra. Mm -hmm. Sublime Continuum. Yes. Nagarja's Collection of Praises. Yes. Sutra and Reveling of Thought. Prajnaparamita Sutras too, yeah. Um, Madhya's Sublime Continuum, Nagarjuna's Collection of Praises. Okay, and um, the key to for the ayas is... Mm -hmm. The path. Yeah. And the key teachings, Nima already mentioned, naturelessness and um, Buddha nature. Uh, natureness, naturelessness. Does somebody want to explain what that means? <laughs> It's just a teaching that explains that different phenomena have different are empty of different kinds of natures. Mm. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so yeah, we have the first turning where the Buddha taught mm, the Four Noble Truths. And I thought we, and I've been asked to delete a short meditation on the Four Noble Truths. Let's switch, <laughs> let's settle down, and um, 
Yeah, go through it. Just uh, I just will raise some points and remind us um, to get a feel for it. Because mm. these teachings are very important. His um, Holiness or Benamashutran mentioned once that uh, I haven't observed it myself, but you said that His Holiness um, very often starts with teaching on the Four Noble Truths when he starts teaching on different topics. Okay, let's settle our body and mind for some moments. Come back to our breath. We are never satisfied, often dissatisfied. Change causes us to suffer. Just by the nature of taking a life, we age, grow sick and die. Here we are speaking about the first two kinds of suffering. Suffering of pain, the suffering of change. The suffering of pain is obvious. Pain such as due to sickness, stomach pain, feeling depressed, not getting what one desires. And the suffering of change, for example, we desire to eat, but then there will be a point we just can't eat any further. Our stomach starts to hurt. First we had pleasurable experiences while eating, and now we experience pain and suffering. Reflect, choose one example for both kinds of sufferings, suffering of pain, suffering of change, and understand the problem. Look right into it. We have to understand dukkha in order to transcend it. When we have all pervasive suffering, this is the suffering due to being under the influence of afflictions and karma. 
one can have renounced the first and a bit the second suffering, but still being under the influence of the third kind of suffering. Reflect to avoid counteract the third kind of suffering, we have to look at our motivation. Are you really understanding what being in samsara means? What it means to have a body and mind that is under the ignorance of afflictions and karma? Second truth, cause of suffering. It is our attitude which causes us to suffer now. Attachment, ignorance, anger and other afflictions complicate our lives and also cause future suffering. Suffering is not the problem but our reaction to those things. We don't like feeling pain, frustrations and such, or likes, dislikes, partialities and reactions to things create suffering. If we want to be happy, we can practice not wanting anything, but how to renounce? Reflect, take one of your previous examples from before, and think about what caused your suffering to arise. Think about the afflictions behind your actions, the agent, the action and object, how they exist. Are they permanent, independent entities?
and we have the cessation of suffering. When we are able to cut samsara, it leads us to the third noble truth, cessation, nirvana. When we see that it's possible to end the causes of suffering, then we come to see that true cessation exists and that we can be free from suffering the causes of suffering. Reflect. We are not our afflictions. Our mind is behind all the junk like a clear sky. We have the potential to be completely free of afflictions of suffering. Allow to imagine that for yourself for some moments. So how do we now attain a state of cessation? We attain the cessation of suffering by practicing the Four Noble Truths, which is the path. The Buddha taught within this path on the three higher trainings, ethical conduct, meditative stability, stabilization and wisdom. Reflect as Mayana practitioners or aspiring Mayana practitioners. We want to practice the three higher trainings, not just for our own liberation. We want to purify our minds and attain awakening so that we can have, as Werner Schutten describes it, the clearest wisdom, the most unobstructed skills and power, and the greatest compassion that will enable us to benefit everybody else in the same way that we want to benefit ourselves. That is strong aspiration right now.
Good. And let's continue a little bit with the last part of this review on the authenticity of the Mahayana scriptures. We're on page 104, if you want to follow. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, writes, at the first council, which occurred soon after the Buddha's passing, neither the Mahayana Sutras nor the Tantras were recited or included in the collection of Sutras. Because the Mahayana Sutras and Vajrayana Tantras in the Sanskrit condition were initially not widely known, doubts were later raised about their authenticity. His Puliness says, that he is fully convinced that the Buddha taught these sutras. He thought that the greatest of the sutras is the Prajnaparamita Sutra, which teaches emptiness explicitly and the Bodhisattva path and stages to awakening implicitly. So um, let's go a bit back uh, into the Tibetan history again. Uh, how the Tibetans explain how the sutras came and stayed within our world. It said that the sutras after the Buddha spoke um, have been brought to the Nagas for safe custody. And Nagarjuna later retrieved them and brought them to, into our world where they widely spread in India. Also it said that Nagarjuna who was born in south of India, traveled to the north of India, Magadha and Bodhgaya, where he came in contact with the Prajnaparamita Sutras. He began to gather them, but was aware that some people doubted the city. So what I found very interesting is that Nagarjuna used reasoning to investigate uh, if the Sutras were authentic. Also, he lived only a few centuries after the Buddha's passing, what makes it easier to research. And as stated in the book, to establish the validity of the Sanskrit sutras than it is for us nearly 26 centuries later, having done a thorough examination, he was convinced that there were the Buddha's word. So on page 105. Then Nagarjuna propagated the sutras out of compassion as he saw the benefit in them. He quoted them a lot in two scriptures, in the Companion Sutras and in Precious Garland that we started with Venmo Shutran some years ago. His Holiness wrote even on page 108, if the Mahayana Sutras were not the Buddha's word, it would mean that the complete instructions of the Bodhisattva path do not exist in our world. Without these teachings, attaining Buddhahood would be impossible and the efforts of millions of people in the last 2,600 years to actualize the past would have been wasted. To say that the past to full awakening exists, but the teachings and how to realize it were fabricated by someone other than the Buddha would be very strange indeed. And Anna Shutran has also a, an approach that she shared on page 109. Over the years, I have had the fortune to study the Mahayana Sutras and commentaries. Even so, my knowledge and understanding are limited. These teachings 
make sense to me when I examine them using reasoning, just as Nagarjuna did. They also produce beneficial effects when I apply them in my life. If such profound and effective teachings were not given by a fully awakened being, such as the Buddha, who else would have had the ability to do so? Certainly not limited sentient beings. In short, my experience with these sutras only confirms my conviction that they are the Buddha's word. While I enjoy learning the different perspectives of the history of Buddhism, my faith is not based on it. So I thought we will spend the next rest of this review with a discussion on that topic. And um, we are 12 participants here in this room, and maybe you can type it in for the online people if there's anybody. Um, I will read them first, and then maybe we can um, split in four groups, um, three each. Can you switch that to the back? First, give some reasonings why the Mahayana scriptures are from the Buddha directly and add some of the academic points that question that these sutras or scriptures are from the Buddha. You do what you can do, what you remember or what you find in the book. Second, what is Sisulinasa Dalai Lama's reasonings for why the Mahayana scriptures can be attributed to the Buddha? Third, how do you personally approach the Mahayana Sutras and commentaries in regard to its authenticity? Do you find them beneficial in your life? And if there's time, fourth, why are the Mahayana teachings valuable for humanity? So let's take about 10-12 minutes for that together, so three minutes each person to share. All right, let's come together and time is kind of out and but I wonder if we can just um, prep up a little bit uh, if one or two of you could share something that um, really was poignant for you something that stand, stand out for you um, from that discussion would be appreciated I'm going to speak for Venable Nima so hopefully <laughs> I don't garble it too much but she was saying how she doesn't see why the Buddha um, would not teach the path to Buddhahood if he had great compassion. He would want to share that with everyone um, because it would help all beings. So it's just a bit illogical to say that the Buddha wouldn't teach how to get to Buddhahood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I also think that he taught it when he was living. Because why wouldn't he? The only reason he wouldn't have is there wasn't a suitable vessel. Mm -hmm. And those arhats were getting realized so quickly, there must have been some suitable vessels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I really, uh, I find um, the valuable, how do you say that? Um, valuability for humanity. And the importance for humanity <laughs> um, 
I find that striking, uh, especially in that world we are living, coming back to on the topic I kind of touched in, in the motivation. Um, I think, like, for example, what Greta Thunberg is doing, stepping beyond her own interests. Of course, she wants to go to school, like many others, and not skip school. And um, she can't see that in her life she has caused what she's facing now or what she's seeing in the world. So um, there is a kind of, I see, a natural um, intention in her to benefit others. So uh, when she cries in front, uh, when she talks and she shares what she sees, the suffering of sentient beings, and she starts to cry, for me that's compassion. And then that she puts herself into that position to help, to do what she can do. And she is definitely not interested to be, um, be in the focus. But she says if that helps to bring climate crisis um, um, to the media, I will do that. I guess I have to accept that, she says, you know, but it's not her interest to be there on stage and, you know, show her face. She wants her privacy, <laughs> like every other child in that age. Um, so, but seeing uh, her example, how much benefit she brings uh, to humanity and all sentient beings due to her actions is uh, incredibly and um what I'm observing more and more that uh, younger generations, but also older generations, take example of that more and more step up. Today, 500,000 people in Madrid gathered and um, joined the climate march there, for example. Yeah, and every Friday, today is the 68th week of Greta Sundberg's school strike. So she's not giving up and she will not give up to... Um, release a message to the world to benefit all beings. In that sense, maybe dedicate our review for all sentient beings who are suffering due to climate crisis and maybe send out our wish for everybody to be engaged um, to do our best to prevent the worst, um, to turn maybe the time a little bit back and support this planet to flourish so that we can continue practicing here on Mother Earth, the Buddha Dharma, where the Buddha appeared 2,600 years ago.